Do you have to hide your affection for foods that are, quote, bad for you? Have you been shamed because you do not eat clean food or food that's clean enough or the right greens? Do you secretly hate raw kale? Join me in talking to Dr. Psyche Williams-Forson about this very topic. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Thanks so much for being with me today. We're talking today with Dr. Psyche Williams-Forson, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of American Studies at the University of Maryland at College Park. She's affiliated with several departments and is a material culturalist who examines the lives of African Americans living in the United States from the late 19th century to the present. Her research explores the ways in which black people engage their material worlds, especially with food and food cultures, as well as historical legacies of race and gender misrepresentation. She's conducted extensive research throughout the United States in this area. Her work on material culture and food has been widely published. She has several books out, including the award-winning Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food, and Power. She's the recipient of several teaching awards and fellowship and is currently developing a new project on food shaming and food policing in African-American communities. Lots and lots of work there. So, Psyche, welcome. I am so looking forward to talking to you today. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Liz, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So, before we start talking about your research, I wanted to ask you, how did you come to be intellectually interested in material culture of food? That's a great question. When I started graduate school, many moons ago, I I really had an interest in African-American literature. And around that time, it was early 90s, and the Oxford Press, along with Henry Louis Gates, published or republished a series of books uh, by and about African-American women. And one book in particular really caught my attention Pauline Hopkins' Contending Forces. It's a fabulous book written at the turn of last century, so right around 1900. And it it details the story of uh, an African-American boarding house in in New England. And the levels of detail that Hopkins went through to explain the life and the cultural mores and cultural activities of the black folks in that boarding house was just was just of interest to me. Everything from the um, interior decoration to the daily activities of the 
political, social, cultural, really struck a chord with me. And so I became interested in the ways in which early African-American women um, created lives, how they engaged religion, sexuality, um, hostessing, and domesticity in ways that gave them influence and a modicum of power. And so it was from that experience that I, along, and, and then something else uh, as a researcher occurred, which led me fuller into conversation. What was that? Well, I was researching for a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Hafia Diner, whose um, area of study is Jewish food ways, and I became her researcher. And so as I was doing some work for her on Jewish peddlers, I came across the term food ways, which I had never heard of at that point, because now we're in the mid-90s. Um, and so I wondered if African-Americans had you know, this encounter with food waste. And that really began my formal research into African-American food culture. The internet was just getting really, really just getting started at that point. So when I did some research, most of what came up were cookbooks, right. uh, African-American cookbooks. But, and so I saw the same food being talked about, but I remember the question in my mind was, but why these foods? Why are these the foods that are mostly repeated? You know, and you could say, well, that's because those are the foods they eat. But my experience suggested something different. And so I really became intrigued with how we assign foods to cultures and then the various uh, ways in which, you know, people in those cultures, you know, uh, engage or have interactions well, so and so I began to merge the two. Did you material culture, you know, food as a form of material material culture. Material culture, yes. So did you feel that it was kind of an outlier in the study of material culture? And how you know, how did you approach it? Well, yeah, I, I did. Um first of all, the field of material culture, um, in its formality, if you will, is very much non um uh, does not really engage the lives of people of color. And I mean that in terms of Latino people, Asian, African-American, mostly the fields of material culture are um, white European and specifically the field of material culture tended to focus primarily on the decorative arts. And so, for example, the homes of Henry Francis DuPont, the, you know, Mount Vernon's of the world, places of that nature, right? Oh, and so right. they were really interested in high art. And so the, the vernacular, the everyday, really did not even figure into this conversation, let alone African-Americans. And now, I, there is a colleague that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say, and I'm always really struck by the fact that the, the early renovations of some of those houses that they talked about, historic houses that were really all about interior decoration, often eliminated the kitchens and turned the kitchens into offices for for the right. for the whatever organization it was that was running the, the building. 
and it didn't even document the kitchens before they gutted them. No, not at all. In fact, I spent a spent um, at the um, Heyrich Mansion, which is in Washington, D.C. I, I, when I was in grad school, I was a docent coordinator and then became a oral historian there. And the house was fascinating to me because, um, you know, we were the historical society of Washington at that point before it became what it is today. And, you know, the kitchen was somewhat non-functional, but I was intrigued by the levels of decor and enduring the tours of the house, the ways in which Mrs. Hyrick was pretty much left out of the narrative. Yeah. <laughs> and and almost nothing was made, no mention was made of the people who actually helped the house to run. She was, Miss Hyrick was discussed when you talked about things like early vacuum system and <laughs> and so forth. But, uh-huh. <laughs> but for the most, or tending to the children, but for the most part, you know, I don't recall that she was, had a heavy role in present. Mm-hmm. So I was very interested in food. As it, as it appears in the domestic space, but also in the material culture of, of home and, and domestic. So that's how I really became interested in food studies. Well, I'm definitely glad that you did because I think that it is one of those areas that really has a lot of exploration that still needs to be done. And People like you are giving it that intellectual underpinning that it really needs because the spotlight has been so much on things like like cookbooks, which, of course, I think are important. I don't mean that they aren't important, but they don't mm-hmm. tell you about people's agency and the, the gardens that people had to have or foraging or any of those kinds of things. And it's only a certain type of cooking and certain types of and classes of people it's it's really very undemocratic let's say at this point and i i think there's i think it's exciting that there's still so much to be discovered so that nobody's toiling in the same field as other people because everybody can find a, a place where nobody's already looked yet so that's great that's right they really can i mean the field of food studies which is complicated, right? Because it depends on how you are approaching the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, we just, um, I just hosted a webinar last weekend, actually last Friday, um, where we talked about this. And, you know, part of the complication is, as, as someone who does interdisciplinary work, how are you talking about food studies? Are you and, and what is your disciplinary lens or non-disciplinary lens? Are you a food enthusiast? Are you So there's so many different ways that we can have the conversation um, or conversations, but there's a lot of room. As you said, there's just so much that still has to be uncovered. Yes, and so much of it is undocumented. So the work is... Um is not just opening up somebody's journal or something and reading about it. And I think that's also right. kind of exciting, but also difficult. It is. It is. So that is my 
Um, food has been my interest over the last couple of years, but material culture is really my passion. How do we engage the material world? What things do we create, buy, consume to order our, our world, you know, in our world? Um, that's really what is a sort of enduring passion. So tell me a little bit about your research right now, the projects that you're working on um, currently. Right. So I am uh, completing a book on food shaming and food policing in African-American communities. In the, uh, when my first book came out, Building Houses Out of Chicken Land, Black Women's Power, um, I had the opportunity to travel and talk with a lot of different audiences. And around that time, I guess we started entering this new wave of good, in quotes, in air quotes, good eating, right? And so we started having pundits come out and tell us, you know, and this is everyone from, um, you know, Barbara King's lover to uh, Michael Pollan, of course, the First Lady Michelle Obama. Everyone started jumping on the conversational bandwagon of farmers markets, growing your own food. And so, as I've been, as I traveled, I had different experiences of people saying to me, you know, the best way and the closest you can come to heaven is to grow your own food, things of that nature. Just, and, and over time, what I began to find is there's just a lot of sort of moralizing. And this is not new. It's a resurgence, actually, right? We saw this at the turn of the 20th century. But of course, with, you know, technology being what it is and the ways in which we communicate, it's so much more in your face. Right, right. So on every corner, folks wanted to talk about, wanted my advice and expertise on what, how do I start um, a community garden? And one of the things we started realizing is that people were lending these, you know, prescriptions and guidelines and so forth without consulting, first of all, people within the community that they were hoping to um you know, create these markets and things. But more importantly, I found quite a bit of shaming. You know, if you don't do this, then you, you know, you're not a good person. Or if you don't do this, then you're just not living right. And, and then just the whole label of good food, you know, um, and clean eating. We started using language that, again, had an ethical and moral tone to it. My area of expertise is, of course, African-American communities, and I find it both within the community and put upon the community. So this new book is really a, in some ways, rumination on and reflecting upon my experiences over the last decade and the conclusions I have drawn in an effort to try and help people think a little bit about what is happening when they begin to tell people what they should be doing, right? And and this includes uh, folks in the medical um, field 
because I've talked to quite a few nurses and doctors um, in my travels who have said it's really difficult to get change their in their diet. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, food is one of those um, aspects of our cultural identity that we are reluctant to change because we bring we get a great deal more comfort from it. Um, it's familiar. It brings people together. All of the things we are. So food is, is very hard. And so how we approach people about changing their diet makes a difference. Mm-hmm. How we approach people about, you know, what they're eating. And I think also people make assumptions about what's wrong with people's diets without having all the information. Absolutely, including, again, the medical profession. And, you know... It's easy, as I have said in many um, in, in many um, venues when I've talked about this, it is really easy to let food do the heavy lifting and take the blame for people's lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, we often want to say, if you change your diet, your life, you know, you wouldn't have these health problems. If you did this, well, African American people in America have centuries of trauma, starting with enslavement, which the majority of African-Americans came to this country by way of of, of enslavement, of bondage, of oppression, and and that lasted for generations. Um, And so to simply in the 21st century believe that food is the culprit um, for many of our health disparities. Uh, food alone, I should say, is the culprit for our health disparities. It's just plain from um, in denial, and it's also, I think, um, a way of absolving this country of the social, systemic, inequitable, uh, you know, burdens that it has placed on a race. Um, And so I really tried to... mm -hmm. No, I was just going to say, and it's also this crazy tendency that I think we all have of trying to have, like, the silver bullet, um, simple solution to things, which I think is foolish. Yeah. Sure it is. Yeah, it is. Because that's why I said food can't do the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. Because you want it to be the sort of magical moment. If you just change your diet, then you will somehow be better. Right. And... Again, that is not the case. And so I looked at a couple of different themes in the book. Um, I look at issues of um, displacement and how um, when we, again, when we police and try to enforce um, food changes on people, we should take into consideration how cultural, um, how cultural is sustained through food for our lives. And there I, I look specifically at an event like Hurricane Katrina, um, which, and, and I focus specifically on New Orleans, actually, um, even though it ravaged the, you know, much larger terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I look at issues of, of displacement. Um, I also look at um, issues to some extent of obesity um, and, and the ways in which that narrative has been thrust upon black people and specifically black women. Um, 
I also look at um, some other issues and encounters I've had with um, engagements in public settings, which for the most part were really innocent, but they were so heavily weighted with um, judgment and other kinds of, of ill-conceived, um, I guess, intentions. And so how does one's intent and impact, you know, how the two can clash? Your intention is to be helpful, but the way that you go about it can have the impact of being much more oppressive and so, um, and so I look at those three themes in particular. Can you give us an example of of? Yeah, sure. Of, mm-hmm. Okay. So, in a community that I was in in the south, um, they uh, a group which had been uh, a community that had been heavily gentrified uh, yielded a group who, in an effort to I guess ease tension applied for a grant which would bring to the community a farmer's market that would accommodate or help to serve African-American people. So this group pretty much had taken space that was owned by and and lived upon by African-American people and kind of moved into their community. And so the way that they wanted to appease them was to create a, a farmer's this is how the story was so they applied for a grant and what the grant did was enable them to start a farmer's market for African-American people to come to and and the farmer's market location was right at the edge of of town where you know black folks had been moved out of and more white communities had started to build businesses and buy homes and so forth and so it was this imaginary line, and then you had the black community. So, you know, when my host took me to the the to the farmers market, um, it was it was not it hadn't been they were just setting up, and so we got out and walked around. And as I walked through the market, I noticed that it didn't feel like it had what I call in the book black food energy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Meaning, there were not many foods that I would find familiar: collard greens, sweet potatoes, you know, mm-hmm. scallions, mm-hmm. carrots, and things. Now they had some things. They had a lot of kohlrabi. They had a lot of grass-fed beef. So, but they didn't have. There wasn't any music playing. There weren't any you know, vendors of jewelry or oil, things that normally, if I'm going to a farmer's market that caters and is trying to cater to a black community, has a different feel. Right. And mm-hmm. Not all of them, but many. Lots of chaos. So as I walk through this market, yes, it's up <laughs> right. And so as I walk through the market, I also noticed there were no black vendors. Oh, wow. Um, and so, um, so that was another um so I told, I was saying to my host from the beginning that the, the grant was flawed in its creation because you want a community of people who you would like to serve to 
versus believing that if you want to serve the community, you should go into the community. So let's start with that premise, because now you've created a thing that you can say, well, we set up this market, but they just come, so they must not like to do well, and they don't want to do good, and it's just not going to work. But without recognizing that on the face of it, the whole enterprise was problematic from the beginning. So the intent may have been there, but the way that it landed in its conception and the way that it landed for the people who they, you know, were hoping to serve was in and of itself problematic. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes great sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me of what happened on television when Jamie Oliver went into West Virginia and told everybody right. that they couldn't eat, and that was all captured on right. on video. You know, it was. Right. Uh, that's right. That's right. That's right. And so, again, this this book is not designed, um, first of all, to um, apply only to one community. Instead, what I'm what I am doing is to um, I'm actually shining a light on, here's the larger problem, and I'm using African-American communities as a spotlight. But you could apply this to so many Well, yeah, and I have my own story. I mean, I really, during this pandemic, decided that I'm going to try to garden. And I came to the conclusion mm-hmm. that I hate gardening. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's really good that you brought that up because I, have act- I actually do hate gardening. I say this in my in my talk. I don't like gardening at all. But in this pandemic, I have started growing containers, and I'm enjoying it. What uh-huh. I don't like, I've decided, is I don't like gardening in the ground because uh-huh. I don't like creepy crawly things. And so you've been but able I'm to also, refine actually, it. Yes, I have been able to refine it. I'm having a lot of fun with my containers, and. Um, and I'm excited about it, you know. Well, um, and so we'll see how that goes. And I've learned that I like trees. Like I like to plant a lemon tree because it always has lemons, but once you planted it, you pretty much just wait for it to do its thing. And so I don't mind digging the uh-huh. hole and yeah. planting the tree. I just don't want to have to go out and weed and uh, make sure to water right. and That's do right. all that sort of thing. Right, you know? right. Yeah, I don't really, and you know, I mean, I moved during the pandemic and decided that I really wanted elements of life this time around with a lot more trees and and plants in my house. But the trees are fake, and the plants are those that I can leave, like philodendron, which I can leave for long periods of time and they still thrive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but, but just in our micro kinds of, um, example, we can see that there is so much more involved in just waking up one day and saying, oh, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and, and not Change you know, consulting life. your surroundings <laughs> and, and how it's going to affect your life, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine if you come to the conclusion you want to start a farmer's market in someone's community, um, and you haven't asked them at all what they want, what it would look like to you, how, how would it help them feel welcome, 
there was literally one African American person in the market. Um, now there may have been others throughout the the day, but he, I noticed, um, took a long period of time at the table where um, you could convert your Wix card into the coins that you need to, to shop in the market. Mm-hmm. And as we walked through again, I began to ask myself, how far is, is his Wix, you know, um, allotment going to, or not Wix, um, his uh, food stamp allotment. Right, allotment. the SNAP allotment. You know, his yeah. SNAP benefits. How, uh-huh. His SNAP allotment, right. How, how far will his SNAP benefits go here? Now, you know, so much of this conversation started for me also around the dollar store and the Dollar Tree. Yeah. Because when my daughter was very young, I used to go to Dollar Tree a lot to get a whole bunch of junk for her little birthday party. And I started to see Dollar Tree, Dollar Stores converting to food hubs. And so over time, you know, as I talked about this, people were really, really critical. Well, you know, the food is outdated or the I know the future. But there's a woman who wrote a book, a woman from Philly who wrote a book called The Dollar Diva, I think. And she talked about how she would go to the dollar store for her aging mother because her mother was on a fixed income. She could take $20 and get her mother 20 and then supplement it with fresh fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. So it enabled her mom not to have to make the choice, as, as I've heard many um, social workers say, between do they eat or do they take medication, or yeah. do they eat or do they go hungry. Mm-hmm. So there are so many different layers to the conversation, and it's made a difficult book to write time. Because for everything I say, others could say, well, what about this and what about that? And so this, this book is much more of an opening of a conversation as opposed to providing conclusive answers. I simply want people to think about the many dynamics as they go about their work, as they go about their lives, um, instructing people on what to do, how to live, how to be, you know, just think about the fact that these things operate on a lot of different Well, well, thank you so much, Psyche. This has been a fascinating conversation. We need to talk again soon because I really want to see what kind of reaction you get to um, to your book when it comes out. When is it? When it should we be able to find it? Um, probably it will be at least a year, but I'm sure that once it gets going, it'll be you know well publicized. But we're we're just getting started in the production, and so I think we have about a year. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll we'll definitely talk again. So thanks for okay. Excellent. Thanks for joining me today. Listening to Tip of the Tongue. We are part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Come visit us at the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.